happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. It is episode number 100 of the EdTech Situation Room on Wednesday, July 11th, 2018. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana, Montana campus in fabulous Missoula, Montana. But I am joining you tonight from my parents' basement of all places. I am taking on every ridiculous nerdy meme I can. I'm a guy sitting in my parents' basement podcasting. So um, here we are. We've got, uh, you know, some paneling. It's very parent basement-y, and I am in Great Falls, Montana tonight visiting family. And joining me as always, Dr. Wes Fryer. Good evening, Wes. Are you in your parents' basement tonight? Good evening, Jason. No, I am not. I actually was in my parents' basement for my first international podcast Skype excitement, you know, years ago, back in 2005. But I am at home in my dining room. So I am the um, chief technology fear therapist at the Cassidy School in Oklahoma City, where I also serve as a lead digital servant. Um, and I am ah, kind of catching my breath. We uh, rolled out a voice over IP phone system in June, and that was huge. We were in weekly meetings with our uh, company uh, every Tuesday at 2 p.m. for the past eight months, and wow, that is great that that's coming to closure, but we're having a lot of other things going on, including moving our all of our servers and extending our DMARC next Friday and moving my office and doing fun things in addition to the regular sorts of summer activities, but had definitely some good times on vacation, and I know that you um, did did quite a bit of learning at ISTE, and we have a heck of a lineup tonight with articles, which I'm sure we will not completely get through, but I'm excited to be back on the show. And for the record, I'm not going for the Buddy Holly look again. This is just my old glasses. I'm officially going to be old and 48 this August, and, you know, the situation is such that it's time for bifocals, and I had to give up my frames for about two weeks to get those. So there you go. Well, um, lots to talk about. I think we should go ahead, and we haven't had an opportunity to chat post-ISTE, and unfortunately, Wes didn't get to go this year, although you've been busy traveling around with family and workshopping. Um, I did get a chance to go this year, and first, a shout-out. I had at least six people find me, two of them, recognize me by my voice, which is just mind-blowing to me, um, and said hello. So uh, shout-out to all that I got a chance to talk to. Um, in the halls, and then also a couple people at the State Educational Technology Directors Association Conference, which was right before ISTE. Um, ISTE was the same conference it always is. It was massive. It was crowded. It was chaotic. And I loved it. It was a great opportunity to meet with both uh, uh, friends from across the United States and, and really uh, internationally, and also meet with a couple of different vendors. And before we jump into that, I do want to make a quick uh, note. It is our 100th episode. Um, for some reason, I thought I would remember that bring like a little uh, noisemaker or perhaps a party hat. But um, to be honest, I think I've heard this every single po podcast that makes it to 100 episodes says this, but I'm not sure if we started this thinking we get to this point. So um, it's great to be here. And for those of you that listen, um, you know, even just once or twice or consistently, thank you for your uh, patronage of our views every week. And although um, we do this for us uh, in a way, because it's an opportunity for Wes and I each week to talk about educational technology news and you know, work through some issues that's good to talk with another about, um, we like to connect with you. So if you're enjoying what you hear, uh, give us a review on iTunes or on Stitcher, or if your podcast app allows for reviews, ping us at EdTechSR on Twitter, go to our website EdTechSR.com and continue on the conversation because this is how, you know, really podcasting empowers conversation in 2018. Um, any words of wisdom on our 100th episode, sir? Well, I think maybe we should dabble in, uh, you know, monetization in some way. Um, I don't know. Um, it, this, it's definitely a, a, a work of... Uh, of passion and love and enjoying just, you know, the fact that we get to chat, it's a great weekly opportunity to do that. Um, so anyway, we'll just have to see. Yeah. Where, where will we be in uh, episode 200? I will. Well, 
<laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna write a I'm gonna write a blog post called Crossing the Rubicon, and I'm not gonna go into more details than that. I'll get myself in trouble if I start making predictions about what'll be where I'll be at, at episode 200. So I'm not right. gonna, well, I'm not gonna say, I'm not gonna say that. <laughs> yeah, I would say that that in a, my my journey is a little different, but yeah, like I I curiously scratch my beard a little bit too about what episode two might look like for me too. So, um. Back to ISTE, there's a really great summary um, at Ed, Ed Surge on June 29th, and a lot of ed tech companies and major technology companies um, did uh, release things that week. There was Microsoft uh, Office 365 updates. There's Microsoft education tools like Microsoft Team updates. Um, I was actually bit by that the other day because I noticed I wasn't – I work with uh, – um, I work with a, a, a nonprofit that utilizes Microsoft Teams as their kind of conduit of communication. And I got some emails saying I was missing notifications. I was like, well, the, you know, the app's on my phone. And I realized that there was a big update to Microsoft Teams, um, the app. And so I had to go in and update the database and restart the app. And then I was able to get notifications again. But uh, Google Classroom has updates. Google has announced updates. Uh, Microsoft Teams has updates. Um, all of the major players, Smart, Lenovo, um, a couple of the major uh, kind of platform providers announced updates. Um, Schoology was was very present at ISTE, as was Lenovo and Google. And um, Apple was present, but not as much on the floor as they were in training rooms. There's kind of a whole wing full of kind of Appleites that, that were, were training there, as did Microsoft and, and um, uh, also Google. So it was kind of the same stuff there. If you don't mind um, uh, indulging me a bit, Wes, I do have a couple of, of interesting things that I did see there. The first one is, um, and I have this under the Google links, um, I talked to Chromebook Maker CTL at uh, on the vendor floor um, at ISTE, and I was actually going there to kind of push them a little bit to uh, you know, release Chromebooks that had more powerful chips in it. And what I was, I was asking for was either the M3, N5, M5, M7 chip or I3, I5, I7 chips, the mobile versions of those chips. I would love to see more, you know, four or $500 Chromebooks that have a um, decently powerful mobile processor and more than eight, or I'm sorry, more than four gigs of RAM. And, the, what I didn't know about CTL was that they are actually an Oregon-based company, so they're they're kind of in my neighborhood. And um, for some reason, I I had uh, only briefly even had heard of them before. I had seen them on on the list of Chromebooks available on the end of life page, but didn't know much about them. And there's a great article. Um, from Chrome Unboxed on June 22nd that shows off something they demoed to me on the floor at ISTE, which is they have a super rugged Chromebook out that uh, they showed me this demo. And there's a picture of this on the uh, article, Chrome Unboxed, of the sales guy actually stood on the Chromebook. Like he, they put a super, um, I think it's maybe even carbon fiber, some kind of super strong material, maybe it's aluminum, um, on top of the Chromebook. It's actually a whiteboard surface, which I think is brilliant right like it's so it's a little 11 inch chromebook with this super metal surface on top that's actually a whiteboard service and he said this is he said this may be kind of cheesy but we put this whiteboard service and i said no that's that's brilliant i love that like the fact that you can use it digitally and in, as an analog whiteboard i think that's really cool but he then set it on the ground and jumped on top of it and i did might have made the joke i said maybe you don't want me to demo that for you there pal but um, it was a, a really impressive and it felt like a hearty piece of hardware. And so there's a great article about that um, at Chrome Unboxed. And I think that um, I'm going to give a little more attention to um, uh, to CTL as a um, uh, as a, a Chromebook maker. And in fact, um, now looking at the article, I think that the same gentleman that's standing there with his dog um, on top of the Chromebook is the same same gentleman I talked to at ISTE. So just a shout out to CTL on the odd chance they, they might hear this. Um, I was impressed by the demo. I'm going to look a little more into their product. They were nice, portable Chromebooks. Um, they weren't ultra thin, but, you know, at the price point they're selling them at, that's uh, been unrealistic. But, um, you know, they were very hardy and seemed like they were very uh, nice platforms uh, to, to, to utilize. Um, and then otherwise, the other surprising thing for me at ISTE was the fact that um, the good folks from Neverware were there with their cloud-ready product. 
but they were actually at the Google booth, right? They didn't have their own booth. They had a little cloud ready stand amongst the kind of behemoth Google booth. And I mean, we reported several weeks ago here on the podcast that um, Google had given some, some seed funding, uh, to, uh, Neverwhere. They're part of, I think, their, their latest round of, um, of fundraising to help, uh, fund their organization. And, you know, I, you know, clearly thought that there would be a, um, um, you know, kind of an interesting, um, you know, partnership there. But the two things I've noticed in the last couple of months, first, they refer to cloud ready on the Google site. Now, like when you search for, um, you know, different ways to get Chromebooks, that's listed as an option. Now, like they're accepting it as, you know, kind of a, a way to get cheap Chromebooks in your district. And the fact they had a cloud ready booth amongst the kind of Google land, you know, massive presence there is really extraordinary. And, um, the thing that they're reporting here, this is also from Chrome Unboxed on June 19th, was that ISTE was the first of their bring your old laptop tour, not your bring your own laptop, bring your old laptop tour, where they were, people, you know, were, were encouraged to come bring their crappy old laptop and they would turn it into a, you know, relatively speedy, uh, Chromium OS device with cloud ready. So, uh, uh, you know, obviously there was literally thousands of, of interesting things to see at ISTE, but those, uh, I, I seem to be sk- turning into like super Chrome guy, but those were the two things I, th- I, I saw that were most interesting at the conference. One thing I wondered not being there, but reading the statistics, was it just crazy full and busy with people? Because it was, I mean, that article in Ed Surge said over 18,000. I thought I saw a number that said over 20,000. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it was over 20. And the thing that, well, first of all, it was at this massive convention center, right? That was in insanely large. Like I'd never been to the Chicago convention center. It was huge. It had spilled over into the hotel next door. There was, um, you know, ISTE related events at the hotel next door. And I would say, um, well, the vendor floor was, uh, it took me, it took me seven hours to get totally through the vendor floor. And I, I had some targets I was, I was doing there for, for work. So, um, you know, part of that was discussions, but it was, it was incredibly intense. And, you know, I will say that, um, you know, I do like as an example of this, there was at least a dozen people that I wanted to see there that I knew that were there that I saw on social media were there friends or acquaintances that I would love even just to high five in the hall. And I never ran into them at all. Like and I was legit at the conference for two and a half days and host a if you add the vendors into it, it's probably hits 25K people. Right. There's just not a lot of cities that can host a 25,000 person conference. Yeah. What were your, aside from the vendor floor, did you get in on any poster sessions or other sessions uh, uh, that were yeah, highlights? I, I did stop in, uh, uh, in fact, based on your advice a couple of years ago, um, I started paying more attention to poster sessions because it seems like now, for you know, for, for better or for good reasons, the people that end up in rooms at sessions, they tend to be people that have more polished presentations and less practitioners. That's just, that's just the, the bottom line. And, and that's okay, right? I think that's a, uh, that, that you want to go to someone that has a, a polished presentation that's done it before. The times I've been accepted at ISTE, these were presentations like it proved to them have been delivered at other conferences successfully. So, you know, I, they know it's something that's practiced and thought through. Um, but I did stop in in two of the poster sessions and, um, I did view mostly student related demos, which I thought was awesome. A lot of kids running around, uh, talking about interesting things. Um, a lot of interest in, um, like robotics, but not, not kind of older school robotics. Like there's a lot of, it seems like there's a lot of schools that are working with vendors in particular to find ways to make robotics more accessible to more students. And I really wish I'd remembered the name, but I did sit through a demo at the state ed tech directors conference with a group that found out a way or was working on ways to make robots more gender neutral. Um, As an example, they had a couple of movable robots that didn't show big puffy tires because they said that when kids, see robots with big tires on them, they read truck, and they want something that was more gender neutral than that, and so they kind of hid the tires inside the bottom of the robot, um, and those robotic pieces, you know, are, are, are very interesting. Um, I saw a lot of, you know, kind of builder maker kind of stuff. Uh, there was several interesting demos with Raspberry Pis and other, um, you know, one board computers. 
Um, those are becoming, uh, that market is becoming almost saturated now. So the price is going down. There's a lot of different folks that are making one board computers that, um, you know, are good for maker style spaces. Um, I saw a lot of, uh, folks that were working on personalization, um, related to technology and ways they're personalizing classrooms. Um, I'm not fully sold on personalization, which I think is kind of a hard discussion to have because people immediately, you know, will be like, well, are you about in-personal learning? Well, no, I just think that, that we don't have enough pedagogy developed around what that looks like yet, other than, um, you know, allowing kids to go at their own pace. I think there's there's more research that can be done there and, and more thought that can be put into that before we can declare it a, a, a great model. But great things going on with people using, you know, tools like. Uh, the Microsoft Education Suite and Google Classroom. And um, I hear a lot more about Schoology than I did a couple of years ago. And in fact, I know a state virtual school that's actually going to utilize that as their kind of big LMS, which is miles ahead of where Schoology was a couple of years ago. Um, a lot of Canvas chit-chat um, at ISTE this year, which has been growing in its volume. Um, and then, of course, the big players, you know, the... Um, spent some time in the steel case, big steel case booth, who has just beautiful furniture for flexible classroom environments. Um, spendy, but beautiful furniture. Uh, last year I demoed a pod that was basically like a lounge chair with a desk that you pull up and then you could pull a curtain in and like stick, stick yourself in the pod. And I really wanted one for my office, but, um, you know, cool stuff like that. So a lot of interesting things going on at ISD this year from presenters and vendors alike. Awesome. awesome. Well, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm in, in the process of moving my office. My office. I'm here in the from, from here. Okay. And there we go. Uh, so I may uh, hit you up for your wish list of your steel case and things because I think we actually are going to have an opportunity to perhaps order um, order a few things as we do that. So, well, that was great. Um, as we may have mentioned already, but if not, um, all of our, our links are available at edtechsr.com slash links. And I am pretty positive that we are not going to be getting through all of these tonight. Um, but uh, anyway, that's that, that's the case most nights. So I think um, there's some really different directions to be able to go with this. Why don't I go ahead and just kind of stick with the, the product update and uh, go to Microsoft? Because I think this is a, a pretty significant announcement. I guess I could I could just say on a personal note that I am back in the iOS family with my smartphone. I I was able to pick up uh, an iPhone 6 Plus for 120 bucks from my brother-in-law, which is a which is a pretty good buy. And um, uh, was initially not not that pleased on vacation just with battery um, or but it, it was because of you know constant you know using Google Maps, using Glimpse, and and things like that, which is going to sap it. So you know, far and away, my best favorite thing about the Android was having a five thousand milliamp battery. So, and I'm not necessarily done forever, but anyway, if you want to check that out, I wrote a blog post about some of the things that I've learned. But uh, here's a pretty big announcement um, on Microsoft. This is from Wired Magazine um, two days ago on July 9th. Surface Go is Microsoft's big bet on a tiny computer future. Now, this is actually going to go for sale in August. So tomorrow at 10 o'clock, I've got an appointment at our local Microsoft store because we have uh, a Surface Book that is in need of some repair. And we have a new staff member that has specifically requested a Microsoft Surface device, and so I anticipate purchasing uh, one. I won't be getting the Surface Go, um, but what they've basically done with this device, um, and it does start, uh, I need to make sure I get the get the, the price right, um, you know, for taking taking most of the features uh, of the of $1,000 plus uh, device, the first one, and it's tiny, it says it, it measures uh, 9.6 by uh, 6 by 9 inches by a third of an inch, and it has a 10 inch display. It weighs 1.15 pounds and yeah, $400. It starts with, at, at $399 uh, for, you know, four gigs of RAM and 64 uh, gigs of extra internal storage. This made me think of ISTE with the RT tablets. I don't know if you attended, um, was that in Philadelphia a few years ago when, when Microsoft was giving those away? I think that might have been in 2013. Uh, it was right before I think I went back in the classroom. You had to have the signature of a technology director, supposedly, you know, to say that this was going to a school and it wasn't going to use an individual. But that was not an impressive, impressively performing tablet. But 
you know, just like you mentioned with the Chromebooks and, and, uh, is it C, CTL? Um, I, I saw them at the Atlas conference in April in Washington, DC, and I was impressed with them as well. And it stuck out that they're an Oregon based company. It's just great to see folks innovating, you know, with different kinds of hardware. So I am excited to see Microsoft continuing to improve. I will comment that, you know, as I think I've talked about before, we've had, uh, reliability, you know, huge, bad reliability issues with some Surface Books. Um, and we've had devices that have had to be actually hardware replaced three times in one case. Um, and, and just, you know, it, they, they haven't been the performers that we've needed them to be. Um, but I'm excited to see Microsoft, you know, continuing to innovate. And, and Microsoft has really turned the corner, I think, in, in terms of innovation. I might have said this last time on the show, but <clears throat> we're going to take the jump to Minecraft EDU, the full, you know, new version this next year. And we've worked out a, a funding mechanism for that for all of our middle school students. Uh, that means that we're going to, ha- I will, our, our IT department will have to support at least the free tier of, uh, Microsoft 365. Uh, which I'm not anticipating, you know, going for, for more than that. But anyway, I'm just, I'm glad to see Microsoft innovating. So Jason, are, are you ready to rush out and get a Surface Go and uh, give up your Pixel book? Well, two, two thoughts related to that. The first one is that, uh, it's funny you should mention Surface book problems because that, that's my, that's my main work computer. I've got a four year old iMac at work and then I have a one, now one year old Surface book. Uh, it's the one with the performance base, and so it's got an integrated graphics card and stuff. And mine just died a week ago, like just straight up and died. There was an update installed that restarted, and then it couldn't see the hard drive anymore. So luckily, I was a week and a half out from uh, my warranty ending, so I was able to get it back. And and you know, and actually, the the sending it back part was pretty effortless. And I'm I luckily I don't need it right now. And in fact, my office is literally closed due to asbestos best as best as abatement. So it doesn't matter at this point for me, but, um, and I've personally bought in, you know, this, this, uh, this, uh, pixel book, but, um, you know, I, I'll see, right? Like it's, it, uh, I like the piece of hardware. I, I think it's a good laptop, but I think I mentioned this earlier that, um, it slowed down pretty significantly two or three months into my usage and I was concerned and thought it was, you know, that, that it was not a, a kind of a good deal. And as it turns out, um, all I needed to do was just install Windows from scratch and it found all the drivers and it was literally three times faster by, by benchmark and by, by usage feel. Um, so I'm, I think Microsoft's heading in the generally right direction, but it's just interesting to hear that you're taking a Surface Book back. I'm, my Surface Book went back. I have some friends that are, uh, Surface, uh, Pro, Pro 3 and 4 users that have had a mixed result there. And, you know, that, you know, when Microsoft takes on the hardware manufacturing, it's not just about the software, uh, software anymore. That's part of what schools are going to look for is that if 30% of your, you know, X product ends up being borked somehow, then, you know, that's, that's, that's an issue. That's going to be IT people saying we got to go somewhere else. So absolutely. Uh, We're so max for that reason, as far as just, you know, the five year plus longevity, we're, we're getting great return on investment on those devices. Well, and as it turns out too, my personal experience with Apple is that um, I, I I never had a, a a butterfly keyboard, so I can't speak to that issue. But you know, I've literally dropped an iPad and cracked it into thirteen pieces, and for fifty bucks, walked out with a brand new one an hour later. So you know, like they, I feel like when I was an Apple customer, um, I'm. I, I do feel like they're not innovating uh, like I need them to, which is why I'm, I'm using other platforms now. But from a service standpoint, I always felt like that was a top-notch piece of the Apple experience. Um, about this Surface or this new Surface tablet, um, I, the the hardware looks nice. Uh, I think Surface Surface Pro fours are beautiful pieces of hardware. Um, I like them. I think they look like they're interesting and useful. I just still don't get a tablet with Windows 10 on it being the productivity that someone needs to be successful, right? And part of it is that, you know, what makes the iPad so compelling, in my humble opinion, is that it's software that is really light. So everything works lightning fast on that environment, right? Like that's the reason why the iPad works as a long-term device. And I think that's true about schools. Whereas, you know, Windows 10 
even when you have it in so-called tablet mode. And technically with my Surface Book, I have a Windows tablet, a big, beautiful Windows tablet. But I ever, never, almost never use it in tablet mode because I, I really, it's just the desktop software that I think is the draw for that platform. So I'm curious to see, but I, you know, and, and if it ends up being an interesting, like super mobile device, you know, where people can feel like they can get stuff done on it, on it more than just tablet stuff, I think that could be compelling. But I am really curious to see what the market does with that. One quick related thing I'll mention is we're in the process this summer, <coughs> pardon me, of uh, going ahead and <coughs> moving all of our Windows 7 devices up to um, Windows 10. We do have one teacher who loves her Windows 8 and just doesn't want to change. It's it's easier to just say, okay, you just stick with that uh, for now. But uh, I'm going to be really interested to see how that goes. You know, Microsoft has changed their approach, their cost, you know, pricing structure, everything as far as Windows 10. They pretty much want everybody to be on Windows 10. Um, our, I think our upgrade path is going to probably be updating those from 7 to 10 and then within 10 doing a, a wipe and a restore because you can, I guess, do that, you know, from inside 10. Uh, we've been looking at different imaging solutions and things like that. In fact, we've been looking at FileWave and we had a webinar and we've had different, you know, Things that we've been looking at because, you know, imaging, it ain't what you used to be. I mean, Apple has changed that with the new file structure that they have for their hard drives with High Sierra. You can't do legacy imaging, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, I'll report more on some of those things that we find and what that what that looks like. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not the Microsoft fanboy, um, but I am glad to see them innovating. And, you know, we've got different folks to support who are, are using different platforms. So. We shall see, and hopefully they're, they're going to get better on that reliability end because um, that's, that, that's huge, huge. Right. I, I want to talk about tablets for one second because it does inspire another article that I threw in, into uh, the mix this week. Um, the Washington Post reports on July 5th that um, Amazon continues to increase tablet sales dramatically, right? And while almost every other tablet form factor and manufacturing operating system is just not keeping up because the demand isn't there, people are, you know, buying, um, Amazon tablets. And to be clear, I mean, I, I own a, a, a Fire 7, I think, cause it was $30 when I bought it two years ago or two and a half years ago. And it's the perfect, like, not, like no tablet tablet, right? Like I can watch Hulu on it. I can watch Netflix. I can watch uh, my Homeplex server on it and it's super easy. But that article is worth reading through and it, it kind of inspires a discussion that I think Wes, you'll be uh, interested in having related to what you're doing with your tablet, right? Like, I think one of the things that's become a problem with tablets is that, and I also think this is true of smartphones, but, and I have a, I have a broader argument that, that I have to make at some point that, that probably isn't uh, cooked enough to talk about tonight. But, um, like, one of the things with tablets is that you don't need a high-end tablet if all you're going to do is passively uh, you know, consume information. And one of the things that that Washington Post article does a good job about is that one of the things that those uh, fire tablets do really well, whether you have the little seven inch one or the, you know, admittedly much more beautiful 10 inch one is that it doesn't really matter that it doesn't have the big app store on it because you can get almost all commercially available video, you know, via the Amazon app store, right? So they become like little mini TVs for under a hundred dollars that you can carry around your house and you can drop and the dog can jump up and down on and your kids can slam against a wall. It doesn't matter. Um, whereas, you know, that's, um, that $400 Surface tablet, a, you know, $350 to $800 iPad, um, or even the beautiful um, uh, few remaining Android tablets that are available, or even two-in-ones or four-in-ones is, I guess, what they call this Pixelbook. Like, if, you, if you're passively, you know, uh, utilizing the tablet only to, to, to read or listen or watch, then it probably isn't worth anything more than $100 to pay for that. So I thought that was an interesting article. But, you know, Wes, one of your advocacy points is that you could be using the iPad to make things, right? And that does require a slightly more beefy tablet to do so. Absolutely. And then in school, we need to be focused on the creation of media, the creation of content, interaction. You know, this idea of passive delivery, you know, is is an element of learning, but it is not the whole enchilada. And in fact, you know, we want to get into any kind of discussions about engagement and what uh, authentic learning is. I think we're going to have to talk about 
um, you know, students being able to create content and being able to create meaning in doing far more than than watching. So um, that brings to mind two things. The latest This Week in Tech podcast, actually from last week, had an absolutely fascinating discussion about the future of retail and specifically Amazon. With Toys R Us completely out of business now, uh, we're probably going to see Amazon do an unprecedented push for Christmas in terms of toy sales. They've got uh, Whole Foods as a footprint. Um, they just purchased an online prescription um, company, uh, and so they are going to be making inroads into that. They've started their own insurance company, or right, for medical, just for the Amazon employees. But, I mean, you know, Jeff Bezos, as they say, just kind of wants one little percent of every transaction that's happening on the planet. Um, but I think, you know, that has to feed into this as well. What is the pedagogy of Amazon? Amazon's pedagogy is to get us to buy things and, and to present us with products and to get us to consume, right? Amazon really doesn't have a, a pedagogy um, that involves, you know, producing and creating. Certainly the way that Apple does and always has. Um, and I would argue, you know, Google, as far as their support with Google Classroom and G Suite and, and Google Apps, I mean, very much about creation, collaboration, um, you know, being able to um, be, be productive. And so these are not, not tablets for productivity, but that is a, a pretty interesting article. And uh, you know, consumption is is a big deal, right? Televisions have, have been huge for a long, long time, and people tend to favor a consumptive media posture, you know, over a, a creative one, and that's part of what we need to do as educational technologists and just learning, um, you know, learning folks, uh, you know, educators is trying to advocate for that kind of pedagogy and say that the kinds of devices that we're purchasing in school uh, and that we're going to utilize need to do far more than deliver. Agreed totally. Um, I think it's your turn. Where should we go next, sir? All right. Well, let's let's uh, take a little uh, turn here. Uh, Wired yesterday, July 10th, a landmark legal shift opens Pandora's box for DIY guns. This is absolutely fascinating. Um, because this 25-year-old five years ago was in law school and he had created what was touted as the world's first fully uh, printable, 3D, uh, 3D printable gun. So you could just download this, uh, get some ammunition, throw it in, and and you have a gun and, and he uh, that works. And uh, he had an, uh, an anarchist video manifesto and he ended up, uh, you know, challenging this in court. Um, what the federal government tried to do was use a, quote, obscure set of U.S. regulations known as the International Trade in Arms Regulations. He was accused of exporting weapons without a license, just as if he'd shipped his plastic gun to Mexico rather than put a digital version of it on the Internet. And I won't read, you know, more from the article, but basically um, the court case brought both the First Amendment for free speech and the Second Amendment, uh, the right to bear arms, uh, together and you know, this whole idea of code being speech was affirmed by the court. Now, the U.S. federal court actually settled with him. And so what he's able to do now is is go crazy um, with not only as many designs as he wants, but the main way his company is making money is with a uh, 3D milling um, device. And so they talk about, uh, you know, they've made billions of dollars with this and it's um, – I'm trying to see what the actual cost of it is, but you know this. It's, so it's not just your your typical plastic uh, 3D printer. Um, these are are actually metal milling machines. But you know, in anybody's garage, okay, one thousand about seventeen hundred dollars, one thousand six hundred seventy five dollars. Um, they have sold roughly six thousand of these, um, and they're called Ghost Runners. And so this is um, you can make your own AR-15, which is an M, you know an M16 uh, for civilians. So this is pretty fascinating. This would be a wonderful article to to certainly have students write about and talk about um, in light of uh, the Florida, you know, shootings most recently and, and other kinds of school shootings. The push that we've had for, quote, common sense, you know, gun control law, um, his organization and, and this guy is a is a extremist when it comes to. Uh, wanting to, to to stop all gun control. And so um, the other thing that's interesting is he's created his own library and he wants to get federal recognition of his of his library because then he'll be able to get access to the Department of Defense's database of all these different kinds of guns. And once they have all those, they're going to be able to create uh, 3D printed and, you know, uh, designs that anybody's going to be able to download and use. 
Uh, so I think there's, it's probably fairly dark in terms of the prognosis for the future. If we're, if we're going to want to imagine a future where, you know, people who want guns are going to, and, and shouldn't have guns should, should not have them because, you know, this is going to, it's going to open up a pan, it does open up a Pandora's box that has never, you know, been opened to quite this degree. Um, because of limitations that we've had and, and literally anybody in their garage with a, a, a little over a thousand dollars worth of, of stuff. Uh, and, and then the supplies is going to be able to, to print those. So thoughts about this, Jason, this is a, a multifaceted kind of article, I guess, that touches right. on STEM ethics, society, school shootings. Well, and the thing I keep going back to is that, you know, these are inevitable byproducts of empowerment, right? And I'm not, I don't want to say that as a defense. I'm saying that, you know, in the same way that YouTube brings, um, you know, extraordinary amounts of interesting and valuable content, it also brings a place for trolls to hang out, right? So, you know, if you open up massive, uh, uh, um, uh, microphones, uh, to, to broadcast to the world or to share with the world or to, to allow the, the people of the world to build. That doesn't mean that everyone is going to use that in a productive way. And so we've made this point, you know, probably hundreds of times in our hundred episodes, but that's part of the reason why we have to teach productive uses of technology in schools, right? Like it's not just, um, you know, uh, 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 shady and, uh, you know, darkened corners of the world that is going to do bad things with this stuff. Like we, these, we have to teach people these are empowerment technologies too in a, in a positive way. Um, but I thought the whole thing to be somewhat fascinating too. And, um, you know, uh, in the same way, you probably remember this from 25 years ago when everyone was hand wringing about the anarchist cookbook. Um, it was an internet phenomenon in the 1990s where, some document that was probably, you know, at that point, 15 or 20 years old. And it talked about all sorts of kind of secret dark things, like how to make your own LSD and how to make explosives and how to do all these terrible things. I mean, that was an argument for not having the internet in schools 20 years ago, right? Well, 25 years ago, um, because, you know, you'll give like anyone can publish on the internet. Well, as it turns out, that's true, right? Like that's, that's become a, 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 a true statement in regards to our access of technology. So, you know, we got past that by proving that it can host um, the Smithsonian along with the Anarchist Cookbook. Well, we also need to be really clear that um, there's been some uh, YouTube channels I've really taken a liking to over the last two weeks, and they're ridiculous, but awesome. One of them is this guy tests out MREs, like that's just what he does. It's an MRE review channel. And, you know, one day it's, uh, you know, a, a, a Chinese Red Army modern MRE that he can barely figure out what the food is because he can't read the language to, you know, a World War II era, you know, uh, emergency cookie ration that he you usually tries if it's not obviously bad for him uh, to do so. But, um, like, it's just, it's awesome. Like, and there's, you know, I, there's the, the guys that I think has several hundred thousand, um, uh, 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 subscribers to his channel, but that's, you know, that's, that's not something that would have made it onto commercial that's, television. It's the long tail, right? That's yeah, it. Right. And in the long tail that we would not have seen that niche of, uh, of media and that who knew that there, there was an audience for that. It did not, right. could, could not have existed right. the internet. Well, and, and there's a gentleman in New Jersey that has, he only has 30,000 followers, but every day he posts a video about him refurbishing an old tool. And so he takes these, you know, literally 100-year-old wrenches that are all rusted up, and he refurbishes them to these beautiful, essentially brand new, you know, tools that he keeps as part of his library. And again, no commercial value to that, but man, is it interesting to watch, right? Like in the same way that the stuff they used to put on the middle of the night on public television was super interesting to watch. But, you know... It, that comes with, you know, uh, white supremacy that, that thrives on YouTube and, and other, you know, dastardly forces that we have to be, you know, careful about. So it's, it's all about that. You know, we're, we're, it's happened very quickly. There's been no other time in history where we've had such a extraordinary change in the way we relate to one another. We publish information. So schools, you're at the front lines of this. So let's use these, these technologies and teach them as a positive, proactive tool and not just a place to go and hide and, and, and spew your, your negativity. Absolutely. Um, let's see. Let's do a little bit of, of safety chat because I there are a lot of interesting things happened this week. There was a 
fascinating article that um, kind of uh, uh, talked about um, some interesting pieces, but this is uh, the Washington Post on, on July 3rd. It's about, apparently, in the journalist gift bag at the North Korea uh, United States Summit in Singapore, they gave away, in the journalist bag, a little, like, USB fan. And I I didn't catch from the article if it was kind of a joke about how hot Singapore can be. Um, <laughs> um, but they were saying, they were telling, the, the article basically talks about this, security experts say, never put a USB device in your computer that you don't know the origin of, right? Like, under under any circumstances. And um, that was super interesting to me um, uh, uh, as part of that. But um, I, I, there are also great security articles where people have done... Um, uh, people have done uh, uh, tests where they'll put, you know, rogue USB drives that, that look like they've been run over by a tire in, like, credit union parking lots. And, oh. you know, 60% of employees I mean, that pick up those stick them right into their work computer. Some of the biggest breaches, you know, in terms of military breaches have, have happened because of that, yeah. you know. And I, what, did Stuck, I don't know if Stuxnet did that, did in, in uh, Iran. But there's definitely been some U.S. military breaches that have happened as, as a result of that. And the military has really cracked down as far as, you know, your ability to even have a USB drive, I think, you know, around yeah. computers. I, I think they've got them not just taped over, but, you know, they've taken taken the pretty, right. pretty strong well, measures to stop US, USB as a technology being available. For that. Right. Well, and, it, you know, it, it instantly creates insecure data. And people can also take USB devices and launch the most – terrible attacks, uh, data thefts, and and uh, otherwise computer issues. And then I also threw in, because it was somewhat related, um, because of the notion of USB, it, it, uh, uh, July 5th, USA Today reports, um, you know, don't uh, erase your hard drive or your, your USB flash drive and then lose it or throw it away or recycle it, because it turns out most times erasing doesn't take the data off of the flash memory and it's easy to go and recover that data. And so the one I keep thinking about is, um, you know, if you're in a school and you ever stick a, a flash drive in your computer, you put sta- student data on there, um, you know, not that it's, it's completely impossible if you have someone's physical laptop to get data off of that if you're not encrypting your drive, but, uh, which, you know, almost no people do, but, um, you know, you, you're creating a, essentially a tiny piece of FERPA risk, right? So be super conscious about that. And I, you know, of administrators that have been, uh, uh, well, in one case fired because, uh, you know, they had, had poured it around, uh, student data that then got, uh, uh repurposed in, a, in an appropriate way because they weren't conscious of a flash drive. So you just, it, that technology is very convenient, but, um, you know, there's risks in, in a number of different ways with that particular method. You know, cloud is, is way safer there in a variety of ways. And think about taxes, you know, um, I don't know if you're sending taxes via email to an accountant or sending tax documents, um, but, you know, those things should be encrypted, not just sent as standard attachments, uh, you know, via your email. Um, and then, you know, our accountant has, has favored USB. And so handing that, and, and I'm thinking about that right now, like, okay, yeah, I've got a, a few USB sticks that we've used for tax time. Um, and I would need, I should do something destructive with those and probably actually set them aside and just, you know, not, not be ignorant of what flash drives have been used for that kind of, of confidential information. If you think about the importance of, of yep. tax information. Absolutely. So yeah, a couple of interesting articles from USB land. Yeah. Um, here's a quick one. So uh, under our social media prompt also from the Washington post, this was July 6th. Twitter is sweeping out fake accounts like never before putting user growth at risk. Uh, in some cases, deleting up to 70 million, maybe even 100 million accounts a day, um, you know, starting, you know, getting aggressive with that. I'm really glad to see that. We've talked at length on the show. Uh, we talked about Cambridge Analytica, you know, months and months before, um, you know, the pink haired guy uh, came forward and that, that became kind of a household name in terms of, of the election hacking. Um, I'm glad to see this. You know, I think that as well as Facebook stepping up, uh, Twitter uh, needs to be stepping up as well. 
Um, I had a good conversation with, uh, with, with our debate coach and IT staff member, um, Tommy Snyder this week about Facebook and the way that they've stepped up election wise. And I didn't, I think delve into this as much as I needed to. We just had primary elections and Obama voted for medical marijuana, among other things. Um, But evidently they're doing a nice job uh, putting you in contact with your candidates for uh, even, you know, local kinds of races, uh, not just, you know, federal uh, senators, representatives and things like that. So I'm glad to see Twitter addressing that, but I'm also overall very pessimistic about, uh, our potential to stem the flood of, uh, it, you know, distractions and manipulations that are probably going to, you know, continue, uh, maybe not abated in it, but much. But anyway, they're Twitter, Twitter's trying. So, um, it's funny you should mention Facebook and the notion of the political pieces re- regarding that. Um, I don't watch a lot of on air or cable uh, television because I utilize mostly Netflix and Hulu at home. And so I don't see a lot of commercials, but um, hanging out at my parents' house who, who uh, do watch usually major network television, I've seen three airings of a Facebook ad this week where they basically say, listen, we're sorry for what happened, um, but we are really committed to making Facebook what it should be. And then they show a picture of, uh, what, well, the, the classic, what is Facebook for uh, answer is baby pictures. So they show this you know really cute video of a baby and, you know, like that, it's interesting now that social media, instead of explaining to us how many more places we need it inserted, they really uh, seem to be re, you know, reinvigorating themselves as a, no, 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 we're way more careful than we're letting ourselves off to be. So, um, yeah, I think Twitter, and, and the other thing is I keep expecting my Twitter followers to go down because I'm told that, uh, most people, and I, I mean, I'm not a, a, you know, a, a, a even a, a D pluser on Twitter at all, but, um, you know, I've probably got seven, 7,500 followers. I expected a hundred, uh, maybe 500, maybe a thousand of those to go to way. Cause I don't, you know, know who's, you know, the people that follow me in the middle of the night that I don't recognize the name. I don't go and scrutinize those. So, um, there has been a lot of hand wringing about that, uh, because folks that maybe were pumped up by less than, you know, legitimate means to get a following, they're losing a third, a half of, uh, you know, their, their followers. Related article to that under the security tag. Uh, this is Wired Magazine on July 9th. The worst cybersecurity breaches of 2018 so far. Um, and to, to segue from that Facebook comment, you know, uh, I think we've cited articles before where Facebook usership and, and use is up, you know, after all the hacks, the breaches, um, the, the sky is falling articles, the, you know, lock down your stuff, people saying they were going on a Facebook fast, deleting Facebook, et cetera, you know, utilization is up and, and people are overall yawning at security breaches, um, and a lot of these things that are going on. So this Wired article, you know, goes through, What's what's really pretty scary about this is the Russian grid hacking. It makes me think about, you know, the MREs that you mentioned. And, um, you know, I don't know at what point this will become realistic, but I, I would love, and, and, and I don't know if this will, will be possible, but in the next home that we have, uh, to, to be in a, a situation where we could have a well and we could have solar and we could have some some capability, you know, to be able to have energy without the grid. Um, it is, it is very frightening. Uh, and I think you might be mentioning this with your geek of the week. I, I glanced at that as far as a router reset. It's, it's very, it should be very frightening to us. Um, the infiltration that has happened, uh, not just in terms of elections and not just in terms of, you know, identity theft for individuals, but in terms of, of, uh, of the grid, um, uh, talking about U S you know, U S universities, uh, being targeted data exposures. I mean, this was crazy. We just had, um, one that was highlighted. It was, uh, it was, uh, what was this? Well, they've mentioned VPN filter. I don't think it's actually in this article, but somebody who just discovered an open database, I think it was called an elastic database or something. And anyway, it was not encrypted and they did a search and found this. And there were hundreds of millions of records of of just about every consumer or every family in the United States that was just open. And it's one of those things where it was closed, but they have no idea how many people had access to that. And so um, I've thought it's it's an interesting thing to consider. How could I reset my personal privacy? You know, I don't know that we can get 
uh, a, a new social security number. I mean, short of going into a, a witness protection program, how, how could you do a reboot and a reset, um, you know, with a new cell phone number, um, with, with new data, you know, is it, is it even possible? Um, so anyway, that's people are yawning when it comes to these things because it's, you know, it's the norm. Oh yeah. It's another breach. And, and even the news media, if it doesn't reach, you know, a certain threshold, it's like, Oh yeah. I mean, that was a breach. So it's very, very important for us to think about our own personal security. And, um, I'm not, I'm not going to go, I don't think down the road of the extreme survivalist, but I, uh, listened to what was that book called lights out by, uh, not Brokaw, um, one of our former news anchors, but anyway. Was it Jennings? What's that? Was it Peter Jennings? No, let me Google it real quick. Um, I, I read this book too. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, yeah, we're getting. Margarigi. Okay, yeah, lights out. Cyber attack. Oh, I'm getting, I'm getting other things. So that West West Googling doesn't doesn't make for great radio. So sorry about that. <laughs> Oh, there it is. Ted Koppel. Lights out. A cyber, a cyber attack, a nation unprepared, surviving the aftermath. Right. Oh, pretty fast. Yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, that book's a couple years old now, right? Like. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, so, it's, well, there's been lots more intrusions and lots more, yeah, you know, scary, scary yeah. stuff under that piece. So one final one um, I want to do really fast is for Apple. Um, Apple yes. releases, um, iOS 11.4.1. With USB restricted mode. And so on the topic of, you know, Android phones and, you know, my Egypt trip in November was, was really the main catalyst for wanting to, uh, have a phone that possibly could be less, uh, open to customs officials and, and others that might try to suck data off. Um, Apple, if you haven't unlocked your device, I think within a certain amount of time, it will actually prevent a customs official or whoever, you know, from just coming up, putting a USB device or USB, you know, connection into your device and sucking your data off. And so there have been known vulnerabilities that have have gone around and, and uh, you know, customs and, and security forces have paid for in order to, you know, be able to get data off of devices. And so I think Apple is proceeding in the right direction. I really do think that encryption and the ability to keep things private and secret um, and not to just have open back doors to devices. I think all those things are pretty important. So I'm glad to see Apple doing that. And then I'll add a quick, I'll add a quick one before we go to the geeks of the week as we're hitting the top of the hour here. Um, a reminder, since I'm apparently the consumer uh, uh, correspondent for the Antech Situation Room, uh, Amazon Prime Day is on July 16th, which is uh, kind of Amazon's way to, well, a couple years ago, it seemed like it was their way to, to, to try to clear out terribly uh, uh, unvaluable inventory, but uh, the last couple of years, um, I've scored really great deals on good stuff. In fact, my office headphones are a pair of headphones that are way more expensive than the, I think, 60 or 70 dollars I paid for them. But it's on July 16th, and they're starting to become deals now, but, um, there are rumors of, uh, not like things like Pixel books, but some of the higher end Chromebooks, uh, the Chromebook for Work for- 14, which is, uh, Beautiful piece of hardware with a, uh, uh, a 1080p screen. Um, there's a couple of the, the clear out Samsung uh, uh, Chromebooks that uh, there's been a, a version two of the Chromebook Plus. And the old ones are going to be apparently nearly given away on Prime Day. So July 16th is Amazon Prime Day. So if you want to get your F5 on to see the new deals um, every hour, um, apparently there's going to be good stuff on Amazon Prime Day. There you go. All right. Well, I'll do my Geeks of the Week first. Uh, I actually am indulging myself for three, but these are really quick. Um, Wired Educator is a great podcast by, by Kelly Croy, and I uh, listened to a really wonderful interview with Wes Molyneux, and it's um, uh, he, he's involved in, in one-to-one, and I love what he says in that podcast about the process that a school went through deciding on a device. When he came to a school, they had been all sold out for Chromebooks, actually, and they went through a process of talking about what do we want to do and wh- how do we want this to transform learning, and they ended up spending time in Chicago at the Google uh, headquarters there and then with Apple with their briefing center and, you know, have ended up being iPad, but would really commend that to you and lots of good interviews. Um, on the topic of podcasts, I'm very happy to – report that Pocket Cast, which both Jason and I use, has had a really nice upgrade to their sharing feature. And so previously you could just uh, export the OPML file, which is an importable file that has all of the subscription feeds 
Um, but now, uh, in addition to having that available, they host for you a very nicely formatted page that has the little show art icon and then a link to every single podcast that you subscribe to. So I subscribe to 100 some odd podcasts, and you can use that link to take a look at all of the various and div- uh, eclectic, we'll say, uh, podcasts uh, that I am still keeping on my device. Not that I'm listening to all of them, certainly not doing that. And then the last thing is Scratch. Uh, I'm very proud of my wife. She's been participating much more faithfully in this than I have. Um, There's a great 25 days of Scratch challenges. It's called Getting Unstuck. Just sign up with your email and the Scratch team sends you a link with a quick challenge. And then there's a gallery where you can submit and share those and be inspired by the creativity of others. So just fantastic for coding. Scratch is MIT's block-based coding environment with millions and millions of projects. My wife's going to be leading uh, two different uh, camps next week for Younger kids and older kids, uh, still elementary age, but anyway, awesome stuff. Love Scratch and excited to see them doing that and the collaboration that is happening there. Great ways to use technology. That's great. Thanks for sharing, Wes. Um, I want to share a tip that we, we mentioned uh, the security reason for this uh, a couple of weeks ago because there was a number of articles where the FBI suggested that if you hadn't restarted your router lately, you could be part of a, a cyberbot attack. Um, because, uh, uh, I, I think it was blamed on Russian hackers, which is nowadays the short way of saying international intrigue hackers, right? Um, but, uh, hackers, international intrigue hackers had, uh, compromised a number of routers that, but, but only if you hadn't restarted your router. If you restarted your router, it got rid of the, the nefarious code and you were back to normal again. That's still true, right? If you unplug and plug back in, um, uh, updates, uh, will restart. It's, it, it'll help, help get you in the right direction. Um, Wes, it looks like you've got a quick thing to throw in there. Yeah. I listened to, uh, Talos, who's the, who's the main people with security for Cisco. I listened to a podcast about this. That one, it's a three tiered deal. So they, the firmware gets in there and then the more nefarious elements of it are a stage two and a stage three. When you reboot, that does, take out the stage two and the stage three. Uh, but based on what they were saying, it had, I mean, rebooting is what the FBI said. And, and they said they had to, they wanted to say something to do some disruption there. Um, but my understanding is you, you do want to go ahead and, and refresh to factory settings. If you want to flush all of the first tier um, malware that, that infests there, but it is, it definitely is a recommended process to, to do the reboot and um, I'll see if I can find that podcast. I think that was from the CyberWire, which is one of those podcasts. But anyway, they're and they're f- trying to figure this out, right? Because this is like all live new stuff, you know. And the more they right. disclose, the more they you know reveal about how they how they learn about this stuff and whatnot. But it's but it is kind of crazy. And yeah, I mean, how many of us have very old routers, you know, sitting there? And a lot of them. I mean, I think they were talking about upwards of of half a million being uh, compromised. So. Well, the other piece of information I was going to add into there is that this has happened to me three times in four weeks, and so I think it's worth uh, mentioning. Um, if you're having problems with downloads on your local network and you have a Wi-Fi router, no matter if it's one of the higher-end ones that kind of updates itself or one of the older ones that relies on you to do so, um, unplug your router every once in a while and plug it back in. In fact, I would double the device or advice to say also if you're using uh, DSL hardware at home or if you've got a cable modem or something internally in your house, um, oftentimes those devices do not reset themselves if they have received firmware updates. And oftentimes you can uh, clear caches and do things that are productive speed, if you just once in a while unplug them and plug them back in again, that gives an opportunity to restart and also to start over again. And I had, had, had heard this twice, and then I read about an instance of this a couple of weeks ago where folks were running into issues where their their wireless network was way slower than the advertised speed from their internet service provider. And the internet service provider came and said, there's nothing wrong with anything, anything on our end. And a simple unplugging, waiting for a minute, plugging your wireless router back in made a big difference in, in the speed inside their house. So um, it's a simple trick, it's a simple hack. Um, but it's a, a, a useful thing to have if you're running into that issue and you're troubleshooting um, in your home. And that's become part of my routine before we start the show. Actually, I just did it. It's just unplug, unplug the router, um, let it let it reboot. Well, actually, unplug the modem 
Um, I, I, I usually do that, but you know, reset it and then you're hopefully going to be optimizing your speed after it restarts. Well, Wes, where can the people find you out on the internets? I continue to be W Fryer on Twitter, speedofcreativity.org. And my wife and I on Friday will share the second of three workshops we're doing this summer called Make Media Camp. And so you can check out what we're doing there at makemediacamp.com. Um, and uh, basically, uh, it's a one-day version of the three-day iPad media camps that I've done the last five years. Uh, and we had had a, had a good time in Kansas City last Friday. So this next one will we'll just be here in Oklahoma City in two days. Excellent. And I'm on uh, Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach. Um, I work with the Northwest Can- Council for Computer Education, where I am the Tech Savvy Administrator, um, blog.ncc.org. And you can follow them at ncc underscore edtech. Um, but this whole action here is the EdTech Situation Room podcast, and we're thrilled to bring you each Wednesday night information from technology news through an educational technology lens. You can join us here live by going to our website, which always refers to the YouTube channel, or to our Twitter account where we tweak out inf- or tweak out we tweet out information about our, our our live episode. And you can join us in the chat room um, and, and and speak with us directly. We even bring in folks as guests occasionally if you're interested in that as well. That's at at uh, 8 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Central Time, 3 o'clock, we think, in the morning, UTC. And then um, you can always find uh, archives of, of this each week at our website where you can find tiny MP3 files or in your preferred podcatcher um, wherever you're currently listening to your podcast. So thank you for listening to Episode 100. Here's to 100 episodes more, and we hope that you stay safe and stay savvy. Good night. Adios.